Welcome back to a new episode. In today's episode, we're going to discuss about Bitcoin. What's happening in Bitcoin that's coming in the next few days? Bitcoin halving, which means that the block rewards are going to be cut by half. And this is usually a big event that happens every once every four years. So let's talk about it. I think this is very interesting because there's a huge difference between the past two halvings. I'll cover that in the next section. But I think this is a very interesting pivotal moment, not just about the infrastructure that has been in place. The pandemic that's happening today is also affecting how we view Bitcoin moving forward. So without further ado, let's get started because this is really, really interesting. Let's get started with something very basic, Bitcoin's monetary policy. If you know Bitcoin, Bitcoin is basically a digital currency. Bitcoin's monetary policy in general, it's modeled after gold. And what does it mean? It means that there is a fixed, there is a general fixed supply of gold that's available. And in Bitcoin's case, there is a total of 21 million Bitcoins that's available. So it's a fixed supply. And with gold, you will go to the, the field and you will, you know, mine gold. You will literally take your shovel uh, or whatever machine and you will take gold out from the ground. In the same way, in the crypto space, you have to mine for Bitcoin as well. Instead of taking a shovel and start digging the ground or start digging into your laptop, your laptop will be solving very difficult problems and then you'll be rewarded with Bitcoins after. So that is the, the general process of how Bitcoin works. And for, to give you a bit more uh, context, who are these people mining it? They're called validators. So when Bitcoin uh, has transactions being passed through, then the validators will come to validate the transactions. Validating, the process of validating is the whole mining process of mining Bitcoin. Every 10 minutes, a block will be validated and added to the entire long chain that has been in place for the, for the past 12 years. What do we do with this? When the validator validates the block, and a block is added into the chain every 10 minutes, then this validator gets a reward. Obviously, right? Because at the end of the day, it's a capitalistic world. Everyone's incentivized with money with rewards. So the reward is Bitcoin, and that's how we get Bitcoins. A validator gets rewarded in two ways. The first one is the block reward. So every time I add a block, I get rewarded as a, as a miner or validator. And in each block, every time you make a transaction, you have to pay transaction fees. And the transaction fees also goes to the, the, the it goes to the validator. So validator gets two things: the transaction fee and the block reward. The model of Bitcoin is very interesting because the monetary policy is that there is a fixed supply and there's a fixed inflation schedule or a fixed supply schedule. So we know that every 10 minutes, a validator will receive some amount of bitcoins for validating a block. And it started with 50 bitcoins in 2008, which was the start, and every 210,000 blocks being validated, that then the block reward will have. So it means in 2000, that translates to about four years. So 2008, every miner that comes in to validate a block gets 50 Bitcoins. And then 2012, it's half to 25 Bitcoins, and then 2016, and half again to 12.5 Bitcoins. And the next halving is actually in the next few days, and it will become 6.25 bitcoins. There's a total supply schedule of 21 million bitcoins in, in total. There is a fixed governance protocol which is governed by the by the machines, you know, to put it to put it easily. And the Bitcoin reward or the block reward halves every 2010 blocks, which is about four years. So with that, one of the most interesting things about Bitcoin's monetary supply or monetary policy is that we can predict the supply. The supply is fixed. And we know that it's free information. Everyone gets to know that everyone gets to see that. And that is a very different approach to 
all the other general asset classes that's out there. And this is why Bitcoin is very interesting and Bitcoin is being talked a lot about. And this is why we are going to dive deeper into Bitcoin's monetary policy. So the next topic is of why is the monetary policy of Bitcoin so loved? The thing is, there is loose monetary policy. That, what does that mean? It means that, yes, we have the central bank or, you know, in the US, you have the Fed, you have the Bank of Japan, Bank of England. You have all these central banks around the world governing monetary policy. In general, they are independent of the rest of the government and the rest of the uh, legislative departments and authorities. So they are quite independent. But the thing is, it's, it's a very loose monetary policy because although it's independent from the president or the decision maker, it's, it is still quite interlinked. And what can central banks do? Central banks, as you can imagine, that is happening right now with this pandemic and the 08 crisis, is that we have endless printing. It means that you can keep printing money, you can keep issuing debt, and our debt, will, our debt has been increasing like nobody's business. We talk a lot about exponential curves, and debt has been increasing with a very beautiful exponential curve that's quite scary. The debt has increased under Bush, under Obama, under Trump. It just keeps growing and ballooning up. It also comes to inflation, but let's talk about inflation in the next topic. So the whole the idea is that in Bitcoin, you have a very strict monetary policy. It's, it's fixed, it's, nobody can change that, it's coded and in place. With the monetary policy, you have central bankers, you know, maybe 12 very smart people in a room deciding that we're going to print this amount of money, we're going to issue this amount of, of quantitative easing, we're going to push this amount of like $1.5 trillion into the, the financial market. And that's very possible because they have the power to do that. So, the, and that is fine, you know, because sometimes our economy requires more liquidity, more cash involved, and that is okay. You know, the act of printing more money, the act of quantitative easing, it's not a bad thing. Sometimes we need that. There's always a catch. The catch is that there is no incentive to reduce spending due to re-election implications. It's okay if we keep spending money, but after we spend money and after we keep creating this money, the next period should be reducing the amount of money spent to increase taxes, to increase savings, and to go back to you know its pre-printing money printing level. But the thing is, nobody likes that. Nobody likes reduction in, in spending. Bush lost the 1992 election because he proposed to reduce spending and raise taxes. And nobody likes that. As much as we would like to imagine that events are independent of each other that they are really, really not. In the real world, everything is related, everything is correlated or co-integrated. So when a politician or a governor or a president runs for re-election and he promises to reduce tax cuts, or he, you know, he promises to raise taxes and promises to reduce spending, what is the implication? What's the implication? The implication is just that he has no, he doesn't get re-elected. And this is evident in the 1992 Bush uh, re-election case. And so there is no incentive for, for government to want to reduce spending and there is a huge incentive for them to keep printing money and to keep spending. And, it, and if you think about it, each, at least in the US, each president, presidency is about four to eight years, four or eight years. And this is a quite a short-term time period and you can just be printing a lot of money during that period and whatever happens, it's like none of my business, the next president takes over. So this is quite a, a moral hazard or a dilemma that's happening. The cool thing about Bitcoin is that Bitcoin is not subjected to such governance or re-election issues that is happening in the real world. And it allows for this purer monetary policy, as in we get to see it as an independent event. 
the monetary policy in the physical world, physical world, it's different because it has a lot of implications. But with Bitcoin, everything is governed with algorithms, with code, with machines, with ones and zeros. Because of that, it's independent. You, you, it's not going to be changed because someone has an incentive to do so. It will only change if everyone in the world has an incentive to do so. So it reaches this social utility function that we talked about in the last episode. So this is why the monetary policy of Bitcoin is so loved. And this is why... Now, the thing about monetary policy is we have to talk about inflation. Inflation is like a, a huge topic that's tightly linked to monetary policy. Inflation just means that my, my money becomes, my money has less value. And to buy this bottle, it used to, 10 years ago, it used to be $5. This year, it would be $10. So there's an inflation because my money becomes less valuable. And that makes sense because when you print more money into this, the, the space or into the market, and the demand is only so little, that means every, every dollar bill that you have becomes less in value. So this is a very interesting, or this is a very important aspect to think about. Inflation, you have to think about inflation when you think about, or when we are talking about monetary policy. This is a very interesting period because once we reach this new cut of 6.25 Bitcoins per block validated, we are actually dropping the inflation rate below the Fed's 2% inflation target for the first time. Now Bitcoin is less inflationary than the Fed. This is a, a shift from Bitcoin being a currency that's always inflating, that inflating means every of your Bitcoin becomes less in value, to now where we're looking at Bitcoin as a deflationary uh, or less than Fed inflationary um, measure. To put it in simple English, it means that the, the, each Bitcoin that we have, it's now more valuable than, than before. What does this remind you of? This reminds you of this asset called gold. The thing about gold is that it's an investment commodity and we keep gold because it has a, it takes a very long time to mine, it takes a very long time to get gold, there's scarcity, there's limited supply and gold is deflationary and, and gold prices has been increasing for the past many, many years. This is a period where we are seeing a shift from seeing Bitcoin as you know just a currency for as a medium of exchange, as a unit of account, to Bitcoins being seen as digital gold and seeing, being seen as a store of value. When the Fed or you know, when the global economy or the global financial market is pumping so much money into, into the space. You've got Singapore, you've got, uh, the, and you've got Germany, you've got France, you've got Canada, you've got the US, you've got China, you've got all these big countries or all the countries in the world are just pumping money into the system and ex doing expansionary monetary policy. That's what it's called. What does it mean? It means that there will be inflation. The inflation, this happened in 08. In 08, with the financial crisis, um, everyone was pumping a lot of money into the system. And inflation was reflected in asset prices, equities, and the financial market. At the same time, now we're pumping even more money, more money than you know since World War II into the market. This will result in inflation. Inflation just means that your dollar value, your one, one US dollar becomes less worthy. On the other hand, Bitcoin, where Bitcoin is deflationary because it's less than the Fed's 2% targeted inflation, means that with every passing year, Bitcoin actually gets more and more valuable. And that's a, a very interesting tipping point to think about. So all this monetary policy aside, that's all fine and good. And you know, that's something that has been talked about for the past two other halvings. So that's not, not, not anything super new. But something that's really, really new in the space is efficient market hypothesis which I want to dive in a little bit deeper.
with every halving, you, you get to see, we saw a lot more people coming into the space. From 2016 to 2020, we see the biggest jump in the types of people coming into, into Bitcoin. You have more you know, retail investors, a lot more institutional people coming in. It's because there is a lot more infrastructure in place, a lot more, a lot more of these products in place. And what products am I talking about? I'm talking about derivatives. Derivatives are basically different types of assets or financial products that is based on an underlying asset, which is Bitcoin. We have stuff like futures, we have a lot of ways to do hedging, the price differences, we have currency swaps. There are so many types of derivatives in the space. So crypto derivative market is quite a new thing in the recent years, which is the main key difference between the halving in 20, 2012 and 2016. Crypto derivatives market has changed the conversation around around the halving because of three things. One is the, the shifting nature of Bitcoin's demand, the increasing ease which miners can hedge their output by having you know Bitcoin's future, and potentially all the other different indicators like options pricing of Bitcoins. What does that mean? In, in simple words, it means that all these derivatives in space help the miners and on the supply side to have a better understanding of, of what their earnings is like and it gives them some form of certainty. This certainty is, is not a secret, you know, this certainty is all out in the space. There's data available, transaction data, everything that's out in the space. They can analyze all of these details and reduce the uncertainty. They can reduce the risk by quite a bit. Previously in the past two halvings, it was still general speculators thinking that, okay, I'm just going to put some money into Bitcoin because Bitcoin may, may or may not work. But right now we have professional speculators as in, you know, playing with options pricing, playing with futures, playing with forward, playing with FX uh, swaps. And this allows them to hedge against the risks, hedge against uncertainty. The thing about Bitcoin with this, this very defined monetary policy, as we mentioned earlier, is to reduce uncertainty on the supply side. And if we can reduce even more uncertainty by giving the miners futures contract to ensure that they get their, their pay when they mine Bitcoins, and then we can also have better understanding of forecast or prediction on the demand side. And with that, we can have better clarity of what the, the supply and demand picture of Bitcoin is going to be. The other thing about derivatives is that you can lock in Bitcoin prices to cover all the working capital need needed without selling any Bitcoins at first. The other thing is also this kind of contractual, contractual agreement locks in the miners' stance in that no matter what happens, they will get money and they will continue mining. And mining is a very important aspect of security for Bitcoin. I'll not talk about it in this episode because this episode is really focusing on the economics design. Having a lot of miners in place is a very important aspect to the security of Bitcoin. In short, we have predictability with monetary policy. Now with the derivatives, we reduce volatility and impact in the future. And this is very important because reducing volatility helps a lot of retail people in the space. So derivatives help to reduce that. Previously, in the past two halvings, there were only spot prices, which is what's the trading price right now. Today, we have, you know, Derbit has it, BitMEX, all the big exchanges, they all have these derivatives market for crypto. The other thing about derivatives markets is that they are rich with information about market expectations, with interest rate pricing, with lending rates, with leverage, with all these numbers. They help to translate market expectations into numbers, which is a lot easier to calculate. Market expectations are on the demand side. In the past, past two halving, we only have the supply side that's really, really certain. There was still a lot of uncertainty on the demand side. 
Now with derivatives as a proxy to understand market expectation on the demand side, then we have more information to determine what the prices are. And as we get more and more of these information, we are moving towards efficient markets, which is, I think, is a very, very good thing. So what does all of these mean? Two aspects. The first one is that now miners are less incentivized to because their revenue is cut into half. This week, they get 12.5 bitcoins. Next week, this time, they get 6.25 bitcoins. The other thing to also remember is that bitcoins are valued in fiat currencies. So you also want to think about its price in USD or in whatever fiat that you're looking at to have an understanding of how much their revenue is affected. If bitcoin does not go up to two times the price, then that means the miners have less returns when they are a validator or miner and they might drop out because there is a cost to all this. It's not free to be a validator. You have to buy the hardware, you have to buy the machines, you have to use electricity to be validating all these transactions and they have cost money. In 2012 and 2016, when Bitcoin halved in its block reward, prices have increased. But there's only so much information that is available. We can't say that this halving again, prices will increase. Also, with the derivatives market in place, it's quite hard to say if prices will increase because it's stay the same. Because Bitcoin is halved now, the amount of Bitcoin being added into this, the market is less and Bitcoin is getting more and more scarce. So maybe this could affect people's behavior, they want to keep more Bitcoins and the demand goes up, prices go up. Or maybe because people already predicted all of this, in, all of this you know, information of the pricing, the, the supply, the demand, and so prices will, will stay the same because people have already priced all of that into, into the pricing of Bitcoins. I said I want to talk about two things, right? So the first one is about Bitcoin having the, the amount of Bitcoin and the price of Bitcoin. The other thing is transaction fees. When miners mine or validate a block, they don't just get the block rewards, they also get transaction fees. The Bitcoin rewards is fixed, the transaction fees varies. This is a very important aspect. If, if we're only going to rely on block rewards, and for block rewards to be the only incentive to miners, it's not going to be sustainable because every four years, the prices of Bitcoin has to keep doubling so that it incentivizes the miners enough to continue staying in the system which is not going to be sustainable. You need to have a different revenue stream so that it compensates to the reduction of block rewards for the miners. As we continue on in this space, we know that the supply is fixed. We know that every four years it will halve. It gets less and less and less and less until it reaches 21 million Bitcoins and then that's it. What does that mean? It means that to incentivize miners to be in the space, to incentivize validators to continue being in the space, they have to be more reliant on transaction fees. And there'll be one, one day there'll be a tipping point where transaction fees will be way more than block rewards. And this is important because block rewards is given out by the system and transaction fees are given out by the people. When we have reached a tipping point where transaction fees become more important, then miners are more incentivized based on the transaction fees. The higher fees you pay, the, the faster they, they validate your transactions. It means that Bitcoin is more reliant on transaction fees. And that's going to be quite dangerous. This reduces the economic incentives for miners to stay on the network, which is part of the security. And if the rewards are lowered significantly, there is less transfer because now Bitcoin is seen as a, a store of value, like digital gold, and you want to store it instead of a means of payment where you have daily transactions being executed. Then there'll be less miners interested to stay in the system because the rewards is less, and this becomes very, very vulnerable to the security of Bitcoin. The other thing is also that when transaction fees become so expensive and we know that the supply schedule is deflationary and more people want to be hoarding Bitcoin like gold, then Bitcoin will be seen as a store of value. Firstly, 
the transaction because of the tipping point of transaction fees versus block rewards transaction fees becomes more expensive and the second thing is as people start seeing bitcoin as a deflationary new crypto asset or new digital asset that is similar to gold then they'll start keep keeping that as a store of value instead which reduces transaction fees so the combination of or the three combination of reduction in block rewards increase in transaction fees reduce occurrence of transactions happening will reduce the revenue for miners to be validating blocks. So the thing about the monetary policy is that it's predictable, it's available out in the open and everyone gets to, everyone knows this information, it's not like a secret information, right? So this affects the sell pressure. Currently there's about 1800 bitcoins mined every day and at, at a value of about you know $9,000 plus minus, that's about $16.2 million being added into the system every single day. After the halving, it's going to be just 900 Bitcoins being mined from 1800. And if the pressure is the same, then the sell pressure is reduced. So that's the sell pressure side, yeah? Less, less supply in general, okay? And then from the buyer's perspective, you know, maybe you could see it as Bitcoin now being more scarce and their buying pressure increases. So this increases uh, market prices. But this is just one, one analysis. I'm not saying that Bitcoin prices will rise, so this is not investment advice. The other thing to think about as well is the stock to flow ratio. What stock to flow ratio means is just the amount of stock available divided by the flow. So the amount of stock that's amount of Bitcoins that is already out there divided by the flow, which is the amount of new Bitcoins being minted. The ratio now has, in has increased. Why? Because the stock is has increased but the flow has decreased because we are having it so from 12.5 to 6.25 and by basic fractions when the numerator increases the denominator decreases the entire ratio increases so that means the stock to flow ratio increases what does that mean in plain english it means that bitcoin is now more scarce when something is more scarce it becomes more valuable in the economics perspective it also it also means that there is a lower price elasticity of supply when there's a lower price elasticity of supply and this supply can be defined or it's already made known and now we're only hedging against or condition on the demand the inelastic supply with pretty elastic demand we can have some idea of the price increase with the derivatives market coming into place you know maybe some things are already priced in so there'll be less elasticity in the demand it helps us to have better understanding not prediction not forecast but better understanding of the movement of Bitcoin. So what's next? Since the 08, a lot of money is being pumped into the system. Now with now in 2020, more money is being pumped into the system. So there's huge inflationary pressure coming in in the next at least two, three years. What does that mean? It means that maybe in the next two, three years, we're looking at some deflationary assets. Things to be like your tips, your gold, including Bitcoin, could be seen as one of the other safe havens that is deflationary. So a deflationary asset basket, including Bitcoin. I'm not too sure about the short term because in the short term it's quite volatile. Um, this volatility is driven by animal spirits from the Keynesian economics. But in the long run, that's where things are a bit more interesting. I mean, in economics, we like to talk about the long run. The long run never ever exists. The long run only exists after we're dead. But a good idea is that in the long run, where things are a little bit more stable, then with the predictable supply schedule with and lowered inflation rate, we can see as a store of value. It means that we can all this information is really priced in. And, you know, maybe Bitcoin is still a new asset class, so it's quite hard to say how it's going to be priced in and market is not efficient yet. But since we have the derivative markets, 
which is growing and becoming more mature with every day, that we can see the future long run price differences and volatility being priced in into the more short, shorter term or mid, mid term um, price structure of Bitcoin. Derivatives such as futures and perpetual swaps gives the, the, the investors, miners, professional speculators the opportunity to hedge their holdings and bet on the future price of Bitcoins. So we can get, we can bake all these pricing, all this information into pricing to get fair price discovery. What we're doing is just creating an efficient market infrastructure. What we're prob probably seeing is that Bitcoin is moving towards an efficient market infrastructure where we have derivatives taking future prices and future information to be priced into the present short-term period. And the supply is already being fixed. It's, it's known information. So we get to price all of them and build more efficient market infrastructure, which means l less volatility and less, less uncertainty. So in the current situation where we have emerging, emerging markets or some currencies going bankrupt, we have crazy inflation coming in, we have too much money being pumped into the system, maybe we're looking at another asset that other types of assets that's safer. How does this define tomorrow's future? Traditional hedges or traditional deflationary assets like gold have, have done very, very well in this kind of inflationary environment. And you can probably see more investors moving towards such deflationary assets. In the past, Bitcoin doesn't have an efficient market yet due to the lack of long-term capital infrastructure like derivatives. We talked about long-term capital infrastructure in the last episode where we talked about how Libra could become a dominant in the world economy or in the financial market. So in the same vein, Bitcoin previously didn't have such long-term capital infrastructure, but now we have a lot of third parties coming in to create this infrastructure and we can price all the future pricing or future information into the short-term pricing of today. This means that we are getting a more diverse set of players in the game. We are pricing in information from these different types of players and we can get price discovery in a more efficient way. It's also good because then, you know, prices can mean something a bit more, more tangible than just speculators coming in to say that I believe and I've got or Bitcoin maximalists who just keep going around saying that buy Bitcoin because Bitcoin is good. We are looking at price as a more tangible reflection of market information in the space in the short term, mid term and long term due to derivatives. And because of that, we can use the market price as a guide to decision making on the demand side since we already know that on the supply side, the infrastructure is in place and it's, it's fixed, it's known. We have already priced that in the past and now we, with derivatives, we can price in the future or the demand, the demand side. So with that, we can see a more efficient market emerging. I see this as a good move, not about halving and the impact of halving. Sure, halving is, is an important aspect that happens every four years, but what other developments does Bitcoin have around the idea, around the event of halving? And in this time, it's the, the establishment of a more efficient market and a derivatives market. Neither a crypto nut nor anti-crypto, I'm, I'm quite neutral. I just believe in the technology and how technology can be used to shape the world of tomorrow. And that's why I'm, I'm so interested in all these use cases, in these case studies, and understanding how, how the fundamentals of economics, how can we design, how, how can we design economics of these emerging economies or emerging digital virtual economies coming up. And that's tremendously fascinating. And I just want to focus more on developing such, uh, developing very robust and, and strong fundamentals to grow all these little ecosystems and digital economies coming up into the space. So don't take any of these as advice. Don't take any of this as investment thesis. 
these are just information that I'm translating that's out there in the open and translating it to make it easier for you to comprehend and understand. That's it for um, this special episode on Bitcoin Carving. And let me know what your thoughts are. I'll be very, very excited to hear back. Till then, I'll see you in the next episode. Bye!